There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have a car stop in Tampa Branch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, and with me today is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you, Billy? How's everything going today? I'm doing good. You know, um, there hasn't been much coverage in the last, I'd say, four or five days on the Cassie Cauley case, and I think that everyone is waiting for the autopsy results. But I think it's sort of like, we know what it's going to come down to. We know that it's going to be ruled a homicide. There's there's no doubt in my mind. Now we're just going to have to look for what was the cause of death. And what law enforcement is saying is that they're waiting for toxicology. And in this case, I don't think toxicology is really going to play into the uh, cause and manner of of death. I mean, I could be wrong, uh, but chances that he poisoned her or something like that. But they're using that as an excuse as to why not uh, release the autopsy results, which I'm sure they have right now. But what we are finding out, and one of the things that is very perturbing to me, is we're finding out the history of, of these two. And when you hear the history and when you dig in to the family court situation, it is infuriating. Because there were many, 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 many red flags in this case. Not just red flags, but dangerous, dangerous red flags that told us this guy, Marcus Spanavello, was a dangerous guy. And, I mean, it's too late, of course, to say now, oh, this could have been prevented, but it could have been prevented. And it's a shame that it gets to this. And we're going to, tomorrow night, we're actually going to have on... um, Leslie Morgan Steiner, who's been on before, she's an author, she's a mother, uh, she's a Harvard graduate, and she's a victim and a survivor of domestic violence. So we're going to take a deeper dive in this tomorrow night, but I just want to mention some of the things that we've discovered in this case that, that are very, very disturbing. And the disturbing parts is, you know, you always learn about domestic violence. It doesn't get better. It escalates. And in this case, it escalated to the murder of Cassie. And that, to us in law enforcement, who are usually, the police, I think, are usually held more accountable than any other agency, any other government agency. The police are held to the highest uh, level, as they should be. But when I saw some of these documents, these court documents, I was like, who is protecting her? Who was protecting Cassie Cauley? She was on her own almost all the time. She was on her own. Disgraceful that it got to this point, Bill. Well, I think if you look at those documents that you spoke about, and we're going to do a deep dive on Monday night when we have Leslie Morgan Steiner on at 9 p.m. But uh, if you look at those court documents, you're going to see the anatomy of a domestic abuser. Uh, he followed all the steps of a narcissist. If you look at the way he did his filings and stuff like that, which we will get into, but um, yeah, I think it's clear to see that the family court system uh, has had its issues. And uh, in this case, it seems like it was a failure. Uh, I'm not going to point the finger at anyone in particular. Uh, it just seems like the writing was on the wall. The red flags were there. This guy was following a pattern of narcissistic behavior, uh, domestic abuser behavior. Uh, and when he was uh, going into the uh, final weeks of Cassie's life, he started to almost befriend her and be more cooperative where he wanted to make the, the exchange location closer to our home. Um, it clearly shows signs of premeditation that he had his plan uh, in effect. Uh, I think he wanted to gain her confidence, which it seems like he basically did. Uh, She was lured to that spot, which was fairly desolated. Uh, So, again, 
Um, it, it, it was all right there in, in, uh, for everyone in plain view to see, uh, it just wasn't recognized to the level that it turned out to be, uh, it turned out to be deadly for her. And, uh, I think that us shining a light on it and anyone shining a light on domestic violence is a good thing because, uh, if we can do this much, a little bit to stop or prevent someone else from meeting the fate that Cassie did, then that's a great thing. Uh, you know, th there's just too many cases of this. Uh, we went over the, uh, the statistics the last time we had her on. And, uh, it just seems like uh, 500 women dying uh, across the United States a year due to domestic violence is just way, way, way too many. One is too many. So 500 is definitely way over the top. For the family of Cassie Corley, a week of haunting unknowns has come to a devastating conclusion. She loved her community, and her community loved her back. Um, I am just I'm humbled, though, and forever grateful for everyone, everyone. We helped bring her home. Corley was last seen meeting her boyfriend, Marcus Spanavello, at this beachside restaurant. They were swapping custody of their four-year-old daughter. Six days later, Corley's body was found buried in this Springville barn, 289 miles away. Diane Fisher lives just up the road. I'm sorry that it happened. Um, it could happen in any community, and I don't, I'm not afraid. Uh, God's got this. So what is Spina Velo's connection to the property where Carly's body was found? We tracked down the property's owner. He tells us that Spina Velo was helping him renovate this home, which is only about 150 yards away from the barn where Carly's body was buried. Spina Velo was arrested southwest of Nashville over the weekend. He faces charges of destroying Carly's phone and lying to investigators at this point. But the sheriff's office says those charges could be upgraded. We hate it that Cassie is passed away, but it's good to get closure for the family and it's good to keep this dirtbag in jail where he belongs. Corley's daughter was found safe. Her family looks forward to reuniting with her and honoring her mom's life. Our main focus is just going to give her a beautiful celebration and get Santa back home with us. Today's autopsy should shed light on Corley's exact cause of death. One of the things that I would like to report uh, that not everyone knows is that um, little sailor, four-year-old sailor, the daughter was given to Cassie Cawley's family. So the, they were Thank granted God. custody and that happened on, uh, on this April 7th. So anyone that was worried that um, Marcus Spanavello's family had her, those worries are laid. I, I also believe that never really occurred that the Bureau of Child Welfare took her under their custody once the police had visited him and they took the little girl in. Uh, we were talking about that early on in the case, that that was a no-brainer. That was the first thing the police had to take her away from him immediately. I mean, just imagine if something bad would have happened to Little Sailor. That would have been just a horrendous, horrendous tragedy. The other thing is things we're finding out, and we're not going to go a deep dive into the family court till tomorrow night. But one of the things that we did find out was he had a couple of recent defeats by family court, which may have spurred him on like all narcissists. He doesn't like to lose. And family court defeated him and ordered him to pay Cassie's legal, legal bills in regards to this case. And they ordered him to pay child support and back child support, which was for him was a huge defeat. But for this guy who was just, you know, a narcissist and, was escalating and get more and more, getting more and more dangerous. It was almost inevitable that what occurred did in fact occur. Yeah. Uh, Bill, I just want to say one thing about Sailor. God bless that little baby that she's safe and sound. That was really, really one of the first things that we were concerned about. And thank God she's now back with that loving family. If you watch the interviews of those people, you could see that they are just good, loving people. Um, with regard to the family court system and all of the red flags and stuff that we saw, um, if you look at the anatomy of narcissistic behavior, uh, it's about control. It's about control. And these defeats that you spoke of, they showed that he was losing control. The fact that the court ruled in her behavior that he would have to pay all legal fees and now stop paying child support. This is where the narcissist was losing control. And that's when his plan accelerated to bring harm to her. Again, we talked about how 
um, in the several uh, two or three weeks before uh, her unfortunate de uh, death, uh, he started to become uh, more cooperative and again, uh, making the location where uh, they would do the exchange just a mile from a house, as opposed to the predetermined uh, location that was further away. That was determined by the court that that's where the exchange would take place. And I think it was some number of miles away, maybe 15, 20 minutes away, as opposed to just a mile away from where she lived. But again, it was a secluded, uh, very large parking area over by the beach. And, uh, you know, th this was the plan was in action. The premeditation is there. I'm sure when this, uh, I don't even want to use the kind of words that I'm thinking of in my mind, but when this gentleman, oh God forbid I should call him a gentleman, but when Marcus goes to trial, I'm sure they're going to lay out the whole uh, premeditation angle of this. And um, I think we're going to get a, uh, uh, I'm sure we're going to get a conviction on this case. It shouldn't be too hard. It's not going to be a lot of heavy lifting. There's going to be a ton of evidence against him. And uh, I guess when we do see the uh, results of the autopsy, that's also going to be telling uh, regarding uh, what the actual cause of death was. Well, Marcus Spanavello uh, is being held in Tennessee. And just uh, a couple of days um, before what we believe to be the date of the murder, he was ordered to pay her lawyer's fees. So that may have spurred him on to coming up with this devious plot to basically uh, kidnap her uh, and change the location where they were set to meet and uh, come up with this horrendous plan that he he hatched. And, you know, we, we went over the case um, a bunch of times where he was um, he was ordered to, uh, excuse me, he changed the location that he was going to meet her. He sent out false text messages utilizing her phone. And that was scary in itself because that sh showed so much premeditation. I think I may even have a copy of, so here they are right here. Uh, this he was pretending to be uh, Cassie, and this was sent to her father, but utilizing her phone. I'm sorry, Carl was acting up, and I broke my phone. Marcus is working on it. I will stay at his place tonight. He is paying me money to do some stuff to, around his house. I mean, first of all, ridiculous, because I think she was so terrified of him. She didn't want to spend one minute with him if she was not in a public place. So you can see the premeditation of those text messages. There's another one. Uh, she was asked, are you in PCB? No, the screen is jumping off all over the place. Let me see if he can get this fixed and I'll call you. Right there, the question is, I'll call you. If she's with him, why don't you just use his phone? You know, which showed that this was, you know, premeditation. It showed some false... Uh, he was trying to cover his tracks. He wasn't doing a very good job of it, though. You know what, Billy? I'm curious, and I do have a couple of questions. Number one, I'm going to assume, and this is a little bit of a jump, but I'm going to assume that she was already deceased at the time that those messages were sent out. Either she was incapacitated or deceased because he's using her phone. Obviously, she wouldn't allow him to do that. So I'm going to make a little bit of a jump there. The other thing, and I'm sure the investigation is going to reveal the, the answer to this question. Was Sailor with Marcus and Cassie when this alleged exchange was supposed to go down? We have a, a possibility that maybe she was... Uh, left with a babysitter or a friend. I'm curious to see, and I would just hope and pray that she wasn't present during that uh, exchange because that's when things appeared to have turned violent. Uh, and again, a short time after that uh, exchange goes down, within hours, those uh, text messages happen. So again, she's either incapacitated at that point or she's already deceased. Um, and I think that no way she would have allowed him to take her phone and to, you know, to broadcast text messages on her phone. So, uh, you know, these are the things that we're going to find out in the coming weeks and months and, you know, uh, at the trial, I'm sure. And again, law enforcement's probably putting together every piece of the puzzle, puzzle possible that they can give a clear picture of what took place way before this incident. So in those weeks following up, they're going to show a pattern of him premeditating to do 
this heinous crime. And then they're going to have all of the elements of what took place based on cell phone technology, based on uh, computer technology, video surveillance cameras, plate readers, all the different things. I mean, he traveled over 200 miles to the location where her body was found. So all of that stuff is going to have a clear picture at trial of what took place and then his actions post uh, her obviously being murdered, uh, his actions when he engaged with, uh, uh, P- child protective services, uh, when they, when they did locate him in, uh, a couple of days after she was reported missing, I believe it was that Wednesday she was reported on the, uh, on the 28th, I believe she was missing on the 27th reported on the 29th. I'm sorry. And then, uh, I believe it was around April 1st, uh, was when they engaged him and that's when they, they took uh, sailor away. So again, they're going to have a picture of all the things that he did. Uh, They're going to have a a great roadmap of what took place. I'm sure of it. This is what I would be doing, working along with the prosecutors if I was the detective on this case. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube. uh, YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up. ring Ring that bell. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have folks, uh, you can see in the green font in the chat, that are part of our channel members, our YouTube family. And we have five different levels at that. And we really appreciate all the folks that have been uh, helping this channel grow. And, uh, you know, we're, we're experiencing um, a lot of growth, too. Not just in in subscribers and fans, as we like to call you guys, but in the way we present these cases and the deep dives we're able to be in the, some of the great people we meet through doing uh, these shows. And this case is such a tragic, tragic case. And as I said, tomorrow night uh, we're going to do with Leslie um, Morgan Steiner, who is a domestic violence uh, survivor and victim. We're going to do a deeper dive into the court part of this. Now you have to realize that uh, little sailor is four years old. So this had to have lasted, you know, close to five years, you know, four, four years that after she was born and nine months while she was pregnant. So this was a horrible situation. And this guy, uh, this Marcus Spanavello, was a classic, classic abusive uh, male, just an abusive guy. And it, it, the horror that, that Cassie had to live with this for as long as she did and that she wasn't given enough help. In my opinion, she was not given enough help to deal with it. And we just play a little of uh JB Biano here. Appearance and, um, I'm, I'm just getting a text message here folks. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just have to respond to this real quick. Let's move away from his text message. 80 mile an hour zone. Um, I've reached out to several different sources in Alabama uh, to find out if there's any connection to that. If he was, if he uh, seemed to be frequenting the area for any of the reason, as you know, he told law enforcement earlier this week that he had business or work in Birmingham where he was originally um, speaking with law enforcement. But an interesting note there that arrest warrant was issued just days ago really just last month which was four days ago uh would have been march st Clair county is just to the east of birmingham and uh, jefferson county which is the largest county in the state in fact let me take this phone call real quick i think i might have some more info for you yeah come back jack royer folks are uh one of our new reporters at wfl news channel 8 where is he coming from birmingham alabama he just got here in the last couple of weeks Uh, i used well, folks, this is uh, going back to right around the time that they discovered uh, Cassie's body. And uh, it, you know, it, when they traced the steps of um, Marcus Spanavello, he had some, he lived in Birmingham, Alabama, and he was doing work. He was sort of like a freelance uh, handyman or construction guy, carpenter, whatever. And that that's what this is for. And from. I think now, I think that there's going to be a multi-state sort of recognition to a simple human uh, a fact that revolves around just human decency and that's this is a four-year-old girl we don't know if we've if she's ever been in the state of tennessee before we don't we don't know who's looking who's looking out for her and think of what the last six days have been like for her 
and being away from her mother as long as she's been and being taken from place to place. She was in Birmingham, Alabama. Now she's in Tennessee. And we don't know yet if what the con a four-year-old girl is now going to be asking, where is mommy? And that's going to be an extraordinary and probably has been calling for her mom for days, wanting to be reunited with her mother. And to for a four-year-old girl to be told that that can never happen again is going to be an excruciating thing. And I think that with people in multiple states now, there's going to be this united cause to get her back to Florida as soon as humanly possible, whether it's by, uh, whether it's a detective with the Santa Rosa County Sheriff's office, driving her back as quickly as possible. Well, folks, we know that uh, little sailor was returned. Um, Thank God. To Cassie Cauley's family uh, where she was, you know, one of the big things, and I'll release some of this from that we know of in the family court thing is that, Marcus Spanavello was trying to get custody, which is a big joke because when they looked at his house, he had no area for a child. You know, a child has to have their own area, a crib, toys, a little bed, whatever. He had none of those things. So he was just sort of playing games with the court, trying to get custody. Did he really want custody? If he wanted custody so bad, why was he not paying child support? And he was not just wasn't paying it. He was in arrears. Several, several months. So this guy was a total clown. And he was all, I think, about power to him, uh, staying in control, uh, and just basically torturing Cassie Cauley. And J.B. Buno was talking about the poor little girl, Sailor, of course, being told your mom's never coming back. Terrible. Is there a more horrible thing for a four-year-old to, to hear? I mean, luckily, um, Cauley's got a sister, a younger sister who seems great and probably will get custody uh, of a uh, little sailor, but that doesn't replace a mother and what had occurred here. Phil had mentioned earlier about on the 27th when Marcus met Cassie was little sailor um, with him. I have almost no doubt that she was not. However, I don't have any confirmation of that, but I, I would think that, you know, he had planned to do this, so to bring the little girl with him, I don't think that happened. But again, we haven't heard, heard law enforcement speak of that. We'll definitely find out about For that sure. very soon. But right now, that there's been no confirmation of that. You know, Billy, uh, yeah, let's hope and keep our fingers crossed that that was the case, that she wasn't there. But you talked about growth earlier, and I just feel like uh, when you're in law enforcement, we have in-service training. You learn about different things, specifically domestic violence, all different types of uh, areas of investigation that you can hone your skills, do better at. And I feel like this case has now brought us, we had uh, the, uh, the Arion case, Naomi Arion. We had this case. I think this is kind of shining a light on domestic violence again, and I'm glad to be doing that, being part of that. Um, the, the stuff that was mentioned in those court records from family court, high conflict custody battles. And it talks a lot about them. I think that maybe going forward, Billy, maybe we could have a show with either Judge Demango or Joe Murray. And we could talk about that after we do the Monday show. But I think we should really try to keep the spotlight on this domestic violence stuff. Let's keep working on it. Let's try and, and prevent these things from happening. When you look at those family court records, you see how the system is set up that, first of all, you need a lot of money if you're going to hire an attorney to fight for you. And then when the, when the opposing side gives, uh, you know, they make these baseless allegations in order to fight them, you have to respond. And then it, it becomes very costly. Uh, it's just, uh, it's a vicious cycle, this family court system. So, uh, I think that we should do some follow-up on that, Billy, and, uh, you know, maybe get some legal uh, advice on the air to people that maybe, you know, some of our listeners, subscribers, family members could have these type of issues going on and we got to prevent this kind of stuff we could all do better. Uh, like I said, you talked about growth. This is growth for me. This is making me understand it a little bit better. It's shining a light on it again. It's almost like an in-service training as we went through when we were on the job. So uh, maybe we can uh, shine the spotlight on it and keep it going. Not forget about it in just a couple of weeks. Let's not let this woman die in vain that, you know, uh, her life was taken by this animal. And, you know, let's try and prevent it.
Let's look at that beautiful picture right there. That's just, it's so heartbreaking to see that that little young girl has to grow up without her mom. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that we need to really focus on and, and shine the spotlight on. You know, folks, part of our, um, what I feel is our job in doing this show, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, and that's what this is, it's a real crime story, is to not just entertain, but to educate and to use our expertise to teach. And if it's something that we don't know about, we'll try to bring the experts in that do know about it. Phil and I would both say we are not domestic violence experts. We had a lot of dealings with it on the police department, but our dealings were in a punitive way. Right. We were looking to lock up the offender. Right? We were not the court. We were not. Family court's job is to try to keep the family together. And in this case, it wasn't really looking to keep them together, but they had to deal with the legal end of it, which was allowing the baby's father, who was Marcus Spanavello, legally allow him to see his daughter. But in in being fair and them trying to be fair to him, they allowed him to walk all over her. When I read some of the family court reports of the things he was doing, he was making allegations of her that she was using drugs, that she was an alcoholic, that she was abusing the child, just horrendous, horrendous things that someone that loves their daughter wouldn't do that to the child's mother unless he's a real monster, you know? And those things are the things that I think that family court has to be held accountable for. I mean, that this poor... Cassie was put through hell with this case. She was literally put through hell. And, you know, family court, of course, deals with this all the time. And am I saying their job is easy? Of course not. Their Very job difficult. is super, Very super difficult. difficult. But there are some warning signs. And there's all these private organizations, I think, that, you know, if you're a victim of domestic violence, you have to seek help. And I know you can be financially drained. So there are some organizations that will... Uh, help you protect your own rights and yourself from your abuser for free. They'll allow you to do that. You just have to know how and where and when to reach out to them. You know, Billy, um, maybe there's some type of, uh, maybe this takes place in some family courts throughout the country, but maybe there's some type of, uh, you know, uh, you can do, analyze a person, both parties, uh, to get a, a picture of, you know, maybe a counsel talks to them and gets in a picture, an idea of what, uh, their relationship is with the parent and the child and also a little background on the parent. Now I, as a detective, I would be trying to talk to Marcus's friends to see what they saw, what they felt about his behavior, his interaction with his child when they were around, even his family members, maybe go into his past a little bit because you're going to want to have, uh, you know, we use the word victimology all the time. We're going to want the same thing with the perpetrator in this case. We're going to want to find out who he was, what he was about, what were his, uh, his relationship uh, with other people. You know, you can paint a pretty good picture of an abuser based on the relationships with other people as well. Maybe he had previous girlfriends that he abused or previous relationships where he was abusive, you know? So with all of these things, uh, I don't think there could be enough, uh, light shed on this to uh, prevent it in the future. And again, you know, the uh, evaluation by someone in the family court system, whether it be child protective services or uh, a, a social worker involved in the family court system to give an opinion based on an interview, I think that would be very, very helpful. And, you know, going forward in, in the family court system, they may already do stuff like that. Like, like you said earlier, Billy, we're not experts on the, in this specific arena, you know, we followed all different types of crimes. However, we did deal with domestic violence quite a bit in our careers. But again, uh, things like that might be helpful. Uh, just get an evaluation of each person uh, without casting aspersions on anyone. This is just a standard uh, operating procedure. It's a standard protocol in a family court custody battle situation uh, evaluation. And then that expert can say, you know what, Your Honor, um, th this person seems to have violent tendencies or uh, antisocial tendencies, narcissistic tendencies, whatever it is. And then it can be gauged a little bit on whether or not that person should be getting the uh, parental right visits or whether that person should have a uh, uh, an order of protection against them. And it could work both ways. Maybe, you know, in, I'm sure there's situations where allegations are made by 
the father against the mother with, with, with uh, you talked about Marcus said that she was on drugs and alcohol. Maybe there are situations where that's true. And and then, you know, the, 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 uh, the custody of the child, the benefit of the child can go to the father in that case, whatever the situation is, every case is unique, obviously. But in this situation, I just wish, and I really feel that more could have been done. I wish it would have been done and we could have prevented this horrible tragedy. Folks, up on the screen, you're going to see a little bit of the vigil from the other night uh, where they're starting a, a Cassie Cauley um, foundation. I could have never imagined that we would be here today doing this for Cassie. Though we all know she said many times. She cried out so many times for help and always said, if something ever happens to me, it's Marcus all the time. There are so many women in this world right now who are in the same situation. And just like we showed up for Cassie and we were committed to not go home until we can bring her home. I will live every day the rest of my life fighting for women in domestic violence situations. I will spend my last dollar making sure that they are safe. And I know that you all will join us in that effort. I love Cassie. I'm gonna miss her so much. One of the things that I will miss the most is when I call her, her immediate response is, hey babe. It could be the worst news in the world. Hey babe. Hey, babe, we got you. You guys did a great job. Sergeant Alloy, I'm forever indebted to your efforts, and I sincerely thank you and the entire Santa Rosa County Sheriff's Department who worked tirelessly the last six days to bring Cassie home. Not only bring Cassie home, but Marcus Manavello is in custody. It's precedent in time. So, folks, you saw part of that uh, little vigil there, and uh, heartbreaking, you know, heartbreaking. This didn't have to happen. You know, uh, all the signs, all the signals were there that this was a, a, an escalating domestic violence case that maybe many people didn't see the signs, but the professionals should have seen the signs, and it was allowed to go too far. One of the things I just want to break when I, I was reading some of the documentation from the family court case, and he basically hid his financial assets. He owned a $50,000 truck, yet he, he claimed only to make like 22000 a year. That's impossible. First of all, you would never be, giving a, be given a loan for a truck that cost $50,000 if you made $22,000 a year. Do the math. you know. And he was obviously trying to hide his financial wherewithal because he didn't want to pay child support for his daughter that he purportedly loved. You know, I don't know, you know, something I had two kids in my life and I support, I paid for every single thing uh, that they did in their whole life and worked two or three jobs to support them. And here's a guy with a single daughter, less than four years old. I think he had to pay was less than $900 a month and he refused to pay that. So, that tells you a lot about his character right there. Not not paying for his daughter and oh, he loves her so much, but yet he won't pay to support her. Just total hogwash. If someone's not gonna pay to support their child, they just in my mind, they deserve no parental rights. You know, Billy, what you're talking about that goes right to what we're talking about in these high intensity custody battles. Uh, high conflict, I'm sorry, high conflict custody battles. Um, there's manipulation going on here. He's manipulating his finances. He doesn't want to show what he's really making. And when you look at all the things that were done during the, uh, you know, the previous years before this incident took place, um, you know, it, it shows that there are uh, different uh, avenues that can be taken during these battles where uh, you can hide assets and you can make allegations and it just complicates the whole situation. So again, like you said earlier, it's not an easy situation. It's actually very, very 
difficult, the family court system. So, but I just think that uh, if there are little things that we can tweak and uh, maybe uh, implement uh, throughout the country and prevent these type of horrible tragedies and, and present and prevent uh, someone like Marcus from doing the things that he did and giving him the upper hand in the system and giving him, uh, you know, parental rights to his daughter where he winds up, you know, doing what he did. Uh, then we can, you know, it, it could be a little bit positive going forward and, and we can make things better for, uh, you know, women or whoever it is that are in these situations. Fremont Pathfinder, thank you so much for your $5 super sticker. Thank we you. appreciate your uh, your help, your uh, contributions. Saverio Macri, uh, oh, I love what you guys do. Jimmy Calandra told me to check you guys out. Thank you for all you do. Thank you, Saverio Thanks, Macri. I love, I love that name, Saverio. That's a pretty cool name. I like ethnic names, you know, like uh, my I, my son, I named him Casey, you know, and that's a, like an Irish name, you know, and uh, my parents had so many kids they couldn't think of all that. They, they had to they had to go to the name the, the name alphabet book, you know, to figure out who do what do we name the next kid, you know? Yeah, uh, I was actually named after my grandfather, but his real name was Felix, and my mother was like, "No way is my son going to be Felix." And they called my <laughs> grandfather Phil for short, so that's how I wound up with with Phil. With Phil? Yeah, yeah Felix the cat was a cartoon that was around back then. My mother's like. No way, that's not happening. So you know, when I, you I, think I, of the the helplessness, even of the family in these type of cases, because Cassie's family knew about what she was going through. They knew this guy was a big threat. To, I'm going to play a little bit of the family and what they were, uh, what they were saying. And it's, as I said, it's clear they knew the danger that this guy Marcus presented to their sister, and yet. They really couldn't do much about it. But in the community, she loved her city of Navarre. She loved the beach. Oh, she was, she loved the outdoors. Taking her daughter to the beach was the highlight of her day. She would go daily if she could. She just so full and excited and hopeful for the future. A very strong person. So strong. Cassie and I went to high school together and I've seen so many people from high school come out in the last five days. It's fueling our fire. Like we're not stopping until we have Cassie and Sailor home. And I have yet to meet a single person with a bad thing to say about her. I can't think of anybody that doesn't like Cassie or wouldn't want to hang out with Cassie because she is always cutting up and laughing. Like when I think of Cassie, the first word that comes to my mind is like joy, joy. And you can tell with the community rallying behind you and your family and Cassie's family and friends, just the rallying that has gone on. It speaks to how um, how much she is loved in this community. It's I've been on the phone really around the clock for the last 24 hours, texting, calling, and the amount of love that has been coming through. It's just, um, it, it, we can hear it in your voice. Um, can you tell us what it was like when you first when you first found out that uh, Cassie uh, could not be located. Now, again, for the audience just joining us, she, on Sunday night around 7 o'clock, she goes across the causeway in Navarre Beach to pick up her daughter. This was relatively normal, right, you guys? I mean, relatively normal to pick up her daughter on a Sunday night because um, her daughter was in her father's custody on the weekends. Do I have this correct? And then something went weekend. wrong. Can you kind of walk us through exactly what transpired? It was every other weekend, and it was actually supposed to happen in Destin. It wasn't normal for her to be meeting him there. Um, sometimes, rare, maybe once or twice a year, she had met him in Navarre recently because we understand that there's a family that would babysit often for Marcus when he had his daughter two days out of 14. And for those of you, uh, Marcus is who was named yesterday in the press conference by the Santa Rosa County Sheriff's Office. Marcus is uh, the four-year-old daughter of Cassie's father, uh, who is in Birmingham, Alabama. But we'll get into that here in, in just a few moments. There's a lot to this story. And so what was it like when and when did you find out, all of you, when did you find out that Cassie had disappeared and, and what was that like and where did your mind go when you originally heard the news that, that she was, that she was missing? Our fathers, you know, since she resides with him, he was the first immediate red flag when he, um, three hours later and she still was not home. Uh, and 
he contacted me the next morning, still just so worrisome. And of course I reached out to her friends. She is always in contact with her family and friends. Even during the exchange, she would have texted. So we immediately, our, our red flag was Marcus because she has always had some concern for her safety in general, but we know Cassie would have reached out to us yeah. if something was not looking right or suspicious. Yeah, it's she not would. like it at all. It's not like it. So I, I we wanna... know beyond a shadow of a doubt, she would not have left anywhere with Marcus being in Navarre, her hometown where she grew up and she could have called hundreds of people within a mile's radius to come and get her. Yes. And this is, and this and is her what daughter has been concerning is because now I have heard, we heard yesterday out of the mouth of the Santa Rosa County Sheriff's office about her purse being located but what do you what do we know about her phone? Because normally somebody goes missing. The first thing you do is you call them. So, folks, this is um, early on in the case, and they're sort of recapping what had occurred. And one of the biggest things they uh, just to recap uh, some of the things we knew early on was that uh, on the twenty seventh, uh, that was a Sunday, she went to meet um, Marcus to do a custody exchange of the daughter. At Juana's Pagoda's parking lot, and uh, their daughter, Sailor, who was four years old. And that's where um, Cassie never, um, she was reported missing the next day. But we, we played the text messages earlier on that Marcus tried to basically um, create a diversion. Here's the text messages. Uh, I'm sorry, Carl was acting up and I broke my phone. Marcus is working on it. I will stay at his place tonight. He's paying me money to do some stuff around his house. Now, that was sent to her father on her cell phone, but it was total garbage. And they all believe that that text was sent by Marcus because her car was recovered in the parking lot the next day. And when they, they said one of the things that the police had early on was a huge red flag, and that was the fact that they found her purse inside her car. And we all know... There's not a woman on this earth that would leave her purse behind in her car if she was going somewhere. So that really concerned the police right there. On the 28th, um, Cassie's father reported her missing. However, that night when she didn't come home, her sister called Marcus and said, where, where is Cassie? And he lied to her and said, oh, I dropped her off in Destin, Destin, Florida, like in the middle of nowhere just dropped her off, which was nonsense, you know, another lie. And this contributed to the family and everyone else being way more concerned because now there was no Cassie and here's Marcus lying to them. And where's the little girl? You know, where was the little girl at this point? He, I don't think he told them at that point where she was. Um, on the 29th, uh, investigators, they find Cassie's car in Juana Pagoda's parking lot. A person was left in the car alarming investigators. Um, on the 30th, Marcus Spanavella was located in Birmingham with Sailor. Santa Rosa County investigators say they believe Spanavello was the last person to see Cassie. So all of these things are huge, huge red flags. And I believe on that date, which was the Wednesday, they took little Cassie from him. Yes. That was never specifically, they didn't give us times and dates and locations, but uh, they just indicated that the, the little girl sailor was safe. And so that's what we're going to get when we, when they start putting this together more, we'll get times, place of occurrence and all of those particulars, which we don't specifically have right now. Yes, Billy. I think earlier I stated that it was the first of April that those things took place where they located uh, Marcus and Sailor, but it was actually, like you said, it was Wednesday, which turned out to be the 31st. I just wanted to make a little quick correction there. Okay. Uh, Andrew, uh, there's this mentality amongst men, especially in a lot of domestic violence cases, that as soon as there's rules to be followed and obeyed, they tend to break those rules and become violent with rage. Well, I think that this started escalating as this um, case moved on. And he, when he was realized he was losing control and he was basically being ordered what to do by the court. And he didn't like that. In fact, 
I believe that they had applied to have his license suspended for non-payal of, of child support. It's clear that that what you just stated, the fact that he had to pay the attorney's fees, he had to now start making child support payments. That was the trigger. That was the trigger. He was no longer in control. The court ordered him to do this. They were going to suspend his license. He knew that he couldn't work without a license. Uh, he was going to have to pay this money. His now his narcissistic behavior took over. He was no longer in control. And that was the trigger. I mean, listen, uh, it's really a roadmap to what took place, all the pieces are right there. If you just read them and look at them, this was the trigger that set off Marcus to do the dastardly thing that he did. Um, and if you look at narcissistic behavior, if you look at the anatomy of narcissism, uh, it folds right into everything that we're saying. Uh, he's the, the true domestic violence abuser based on all of the actions that he did previous to, you, you know, there, there's uh, records going back four years about family court things that took place. So uh, you look at all his tactics and it folds right into uh, the anatomy of a domestic violence abuser and a narcissist. So uh, there you have it. No doubt. Phil, let's take a quick break and uh, do this. Do this Joe Murray, attorney. Say again, Bill. I'll just do this quick announcement. Sure. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. John Beatty Law, www.jbdlaw.com. John Beatty is a renowned personal injury attorney. He's also a retired as a decorated NYPD sergeant. John comes from a proud NYPD and FDNY family. He was an active sergeant in Brooklyn North and supervised in the legal bureau. John is a proud member of the Honor Legion and the Blue Knights. John Beatty litigates across the country for seriously injured victims and has helped recover over $200 million for grieving families. Call John now for a free consultation. John Beatty, 917-797-9520. That's John Beatty Law, www.jbeattylaw.com. You know, folks, this case, uh, a lot of people are asking because some of the things, of course, everyone wanted to is waiting sort of on is what are the results of the autopsy? And of course, we're interested in hearing about them, but I think it's almost a foregone conclusion that this is going to be ruled a, a murder, and B, how did it happen? How did Marcus Spanavello kill her? Those facts we don't know right now, and law enforcement was sort of hiding behind the fact that they were waiting for the toxicology. I don't think it's necessary in this case to know the toxicology before you rule on uh, whether it's a homicide and B, what was the cause of death? Absolutely, Billy. I think uh, manner and cause is very, very important in the case, obviously. We're going to assume that the, uh, the manner of death was a homicide. She didn't die naturally. She didn't die by accident. She didn't die of uh, a drug overdose or anything like that. According to what we believe, obviously, uh, you know, the, uh, the results of toxicology are going to be able to affirm that. But uh, uh, again, the the manner in which she died, that's going to be very, very important. Um, and I think that, you know, listen, they don't have to put it out at this point. They're probably building a very tight case as of uh, now, looking into all the other stuff that we talked about previously. So uh, it will come out shortly, I hope, and uh, we'll have a better idea of actually what took place. Uh, one quick thing I wanted to talk about Um you know, he made some allegations about her not being a, a, a good parent, uh, alcoholic, drugs. You look at the profile of this woman. You talk to those people. You see the things that they say. You can tell clearly that this was a loving family, that this was a good person, that this was a good parent. And that's just on the surface what we're seeing. But you can tell. I mean, when we did uh, some uh, of the the... the podcasts on Summer Wells, and you looked at those two parents, it was clear that they were uh, 
alcoholic abuses or drug abuses. And you don't see any of that here. You see a loving family. I'm just so happy that Sailor is with that family now with, with her uh, Cassie's sister and Cassie's dad. And uh, it's just, uh, you can see the, the, the picture that we're painting of the background of Cassie, uh, all of the allegations that he made. Uh, it, it's clear to me that they're nonsense. So uh, she's in a, uh, that, that child sailor is in a loving family and that's a good thing. Uh, unfortunately, her mom is gone, but uh, I don't think there's any indication of uh, child abuse on, on her end. Those allegations that were made by him uh, clearly made up nonsense. Well, Phil, when we take a deep dive into the case uh, tomorrow night, um, it, it, it indicates that, you know, family court basically investigated the allegations and they all turned out to be nonsense. Right. So when people, when a person makes false allegations against another, that points the finger more at them and shows that they're the dangerous party in this case, not the poor person. And just think, someone makes an allegation against you, it has to be investigated. So you're inconvenienced by that, and you're you're made to look like this monster. And she was totally, you know, a good mother and a good person. And this this guy, you know, to use the words of uh, Sheriff Johnson, this dirtbag, you know, uh, you know, even though I said I wouldn't do that, but I did use that term to describe him. Uh, he's he was the party in this case that was really the danger. Betty Smith, this is a cautionary tale that women who are in custody arrangements should trade the kids at a police station or similar. Just don't trust the guy. I think Cassie's defense wasn't up. Poor lady Betty. Um, I happen to agree with you. We had suggested that on numerous uh, other occasions when we were uh, doing this case that he was a danger. So uh, that's it. Should be, the, the safest place you can do a custody exchange is in the police precinct, inside, in front of the desk officer. Absolutely, Billy. Um, real quick, you talked about the fact that there were allegations made. Uh, I'm not going to go too deep into it. Monday night, we're going to go into the whole uh, family court thing. But there was a, a, a time, a point in time when he made allegations to Child Protective Services. I don't know if that's what it's called in the state of Florida, but it was the equivalent of Child Protective Services. He made an allegation and uh, saying that she was unfit money mother. It was investigated. It was found not to be true. And again, the projection is this. He's saying she's unfit, but yet when they look at his residence, he doesn't have the necessary things to to have a child to thrive in, in his home. Uh, like you said, there was no area for her. So again, it's projection. He's projecting on her what he was actually doing. And I've had a family member that was caught up in one of these high uh, conflict custody battles. And again, the exchange was done for the custody uh, at the police station, uh, it was like on a every other week basis, similar to what Cassie was doing, but it was done. Uh, initially, it started inside the police station, and then as the conflict started to uh, ease a little bit, the the uh, uh, exchange was done outside the police station, in front of the police station, so as to not expose the child to, you know, if a child is inside of a police station and they're bringing some drunk in or something like that, or, or you know, uh, narcotics is bringing prisoners in, uh, not to expose the child to that, they chose to do it outside the police station. So there are ways to work around these things, to do the exchange in a safe environment, that's what we have to focus on. Those are the things that need to be implemented. Like I said, I have personal knowledge of that. Uh, over time, in that situation I was just talking about, the father just uh, stopped even uh, accepting, uh, uh, you know, custody visits. So, uh, again, it shows where that person's mind was. But in this situation, we were dealing with someone who was not going to let go, uh, that, you know, uh, employed uh, premeditation and, and did what he did. So, uh, you know, we have to really... Uh, keep these women safe. Uh, these exchanges should be made in safe places. I think police station is a police station in every town, in every area of the United States. So uh, that's probably the most logical place to do these things. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And if you want to help support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels and you can join our Channel members be part of our YouTube family. Andrew, these crimes are becoming too familiar and becoming prevalent in our society. We need to evaluate where are we going wrong here? Are we dealing with domestic violence in a wrong way? Andrew, I totally agree with you. 
they should always, um, when something like this happens, they should always look inward and see what they, maybe they did do something wrong. Let me play a little bit of this. He was, you know, he was fighting extradition, and this is the uh, court appearance, uh, which was last week. Fugitive from justice charge, taken out by uh, Trooper Cotton with the Tennessee Highway Patrol. The defendant is charged on the oath of a credible person by a judge in the state of Florida. The defendant does now does have issued warrants for his arrest with full extradition. The defendant was stopped for a traffic violation that occurred on I-65 in Murray County. He's got the whole from Santa Rosa County, Florida, Your Honor. All right. Mr. Spinanello, are you willing to waive extradition? Not at this moment. Okay. Well, they have a. Some things. Sir, there are some things that need to be resolved before um, we'll to, go, to go that route. Okay. Well, I'll put you back on the review docket for 13, for 13 April, and then we'll meet again to review your status as far as extradition. Okay. I'm just trying to get to make sure that my daughter is taken care of with the people that um that I'm leaving her with. Okay. So. April the thirteenth. We'll review your extradition status at that time. Under, under rules and procedure, they have 10 days in which to notify the state of their intent to extradite. And so we'll check it back on April the 13th. All right. All right. So he's pretending in, in that arraignment that he wants custody or that he wants his family, you know, to get custody. I think his whole uh petition of the court during the four years he was fighting this wasn't wasn't that he wanted custody he just wanted the power over poor cassie you know and that's one of the things we're going to look at tomorrow night is uh why didn't family court recognize this as being such a potentially dangerous situation um Suman Sri, I look forward to Monday on his accusations of her I saw a chat where she was asking to change exchange day and he wanted to stick to what the court said should he have been counseled i think this guy needed more than counseling i think that he needed to be arrested you know because first of all not paying child support is a, is contempt of court because you've agreed to those terms and when you don't pay it that's why they suspended his license because that's the only way to get to him you're not going to pay the money and he was lying in all of his court paperwork he was lying he claimed to make twenty two thousand dollars a year i mean come on and how do you own a fifty thousand dollar truck if you make twenty two thousand dollars a year so he Billy, got away well, with some things you know i think that he should have uh infamous truth teller he just wanted to control that's the whole point of a lot of domestic abuse and domestic violence and relationships absolutely. with control that's the main fact infamous truth teller that's why they call you that you tell the truth Absolutely. And you're infamous. <laughs> Billy, That's I just wanted sure. to make a comment on uh, when we had Leslie Morgan Steiner on the show, there was those two statistics that are really jumping out at me. 500 women yearly killed in domestic violence cases. Now, I knew that obviously there were domestic violence situations where women are killed or uh, partners are killed or whatever it is. But then again, uh, th this case, it falls into the two big uh, uh statistics that she pointed out over 70 percent of the murders happen when the victim has left the relationship so again we're going to dig down deep on that on monday and uh talk about it uh you know the the big domestic violence case uh in 
you know, the last 30 years or so was Nicole Brown, uh, Nicole Brown Simpson and uh, Ronald Goldman that were killed by OJ Simpson. And I think that's when the whole, I know in the NYPD, that's when we revamped how we did things instead of referring cases to court of the minor nature, there was a, a must arrest situation. I think it's time again, we're getting a lot of these cases. Now, again, it's time to look at the system again, look at the domestic violence court system, family court. Let's put a focus on it. Maybe there are some tune-ups that we could do, uh, things that we can implement to prevent these type of uh, horrible occurrences that are going on. I was a little bit shocked by that number, uh, 500 a year. That's many, many, way too many, obviously. Uh, Stephanie Morrison, uh, I'm dealing with the same thing with my kid's father. The court commissioner keeps denying my paperwork and I can't get the family court to listen or even take me serious. I can't afford a lawyer. See, that's a tragic thing. It's like a catch-22 because you really need a professional advocate and you need a good attorney. And without a good attorney, sometimes this stuff goes on deaf ears and the court's not listening. And uh, Stephanie Morrison, I feel horrible for you that that's the situation. And that's how some of these situations have been allowed to escalate. You know, criminals get legal aid attorneys for free, you yeah. know, why shouldn't people in um, these domestic violence cases where they can't afford an attorney, why shouldn't they get a court-appointed attorney? It's just it's just outrageous, you know. Uh, Sandy F., my daughter, is in a very similar situation, and unfortunately, only one who has the power is the judge. She has to do what the judge orders. She's been going through this for three years, exact same. Horrible, horrible situation. And it's, uh, you know, look, I don't claim... To, to, to uh, assume that family court judges have an easy job. I think their job is very, very difficult. It's sometimes very difficult for them to come to the decision. What is the truth? Who's telling the truth? Who's lying? You know, so uh, Marilyn Mineta, I'm planning to watch tomorrow night because I'm a recovering abused person and it's a long time and getting through being abused, you don't get through it fast. Thank you um, for sharing that with us, Marilyn. And uh, we don't assume that. Uh, that any of this is easy at all. And that's why we're trying to shine a light on it. You know, um, peppermint mocha. After I left my ex, he beat two women, got kicked out of military. They put him away for a few months, then just closed case that involved my kids. Yeah. These situations are horrible, you know, and, uh, I, you know, we feel for you. And that's, again, that's why we are, uh, that's why we are shining a light on it. Infamous truth teller. Police officer cuff the PDF of the fact sheets of domestic violence like economic abuse, effects on children. I sent them to you. It's okay. Appreciate you guys just bringing this to the forefront. I had them, uh, infamous truth teller, and I may use them tomorrow night in tomorrow night's uh, episode. And thank you so much. I think they were from Indiana, if I'm not, uh, if I'm correct. Patricia Emmerich, I did not have a lawyer. I went to child support and filed my papers, and child support was wonderful. They did everything. He disappeared for four months. He was caught and he paid back uh, back pay. The child uh, support system works. Well, it worked for you. For a lot of people, it doesn't work. You know, uh, Let's try to get it to work for everybody, though. That's a good yeah. point that you, this young lady brings up. And, uh, you know, the systems are in place. And sometimes they can be manipulated as that first uh, comment that the young lady made that, uh, the, you know, he's going to complicate it to work it in his favor. And a lot of times the, what I read, the attorneys that are on the other end of it, they don't want to shoot back so much because then it stretches out legal fees. So a lot of times uh, these complications that these domestic abusers put into the actual case, uh, it strings things out. It complicates the whole situation and it makes the case go on and on and on. And that's how they retain control. So we have to point these things out. Look at all these women that we have coming in, Billy. I feel good that we're doing this, that we're shining the spotlight on it. This is, uh, something that uh, really needed to be done. Unfortunately, this young lady lost her life. And, uh, I think that we're not going to let her die in vain by putting the focus on this. And I'm just uh, looking forward to Monday night show to really dig deep on it. Absolutely. Julie Falcon, you can contact your state's bar association and ask, ask if there are pro bono lawyers who can handle domestic cases. Many law firms require lawyers to do various areas of law outside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that they have 18B lawyers that volunteer to take indigent clients. Uh, but this is um this is pretty damn important, you know. Uh 
No woman should have to go into court against, uh, uh, you know, an ex-husband, spouse, whatever it is, boyfriend, when, when dealing with a child without an attorney. Um, in New York, uh, there's always an attorney provided, but across the country, no woman, no person, shouldn't be woman, man, whatever, should have to go into these kind of battles without legal representation. Let's make that clear. There are legal representation avenues that you can find uh, if you don't have money, if you don't have funds to do it. I'm sure that there is. You have to just seek it out. And listen, don't give up. You have to battle. It's for the safety of yourself and your child. So uh, really, you have to seek it out. There's many, many uh, different uh, areas where you can find legal legal help, uh, whether it be the Legal Aid Society that we have here in New York or whatever it is. Don't go into court without legal representation. That's for sure. You know, uh, folks, we sort of, uh, we always get carried away and we stay on longer than we had anticipated, which is fine. I mean, this is such an important, important topic. But uh, I want to thank all you guys, all you folks in the chat that volunteered. Some of you are very knowledgeable, uh, and um, some of you have more knowledge on this topic than we do. And I appreciate your contributions. And I just ask you um, tomorrow night at 9 o'clock, tune in. We're going to be taking a deeper dive into this and speaking more about uh, the family court part. And did they err, and did they make a mistake in this? And how can they do things differently in these type of cases? Phil, final words. Final words. Uh, Marilyn Mineta put in the uh, chat earlier. Here's a thought. Do you think that doing a fundraiser for the child, what do you think about it? Uh, I actually tried to contact Rianne on Facebook. I asked her to come on. Uh, there is a, a GoFundMe page for the family, and then she started the Cassie Carley Foundation. So there are areas that you can donate if you would li like to. Please do go on the GoFundMe page. That's what I did. Hopefully, uh, we may be able to do something in the future. Let's see. But uh, again, uh, let's not let this woman die in vain. Uh, Monday night's going to be a great show. We're going to dig deep into all of the stuff that transpired in the family court in the years preceding uh, Cassie's unfortunate death. And um, let's, like I said, let's not let this woman die in vain. Let's shine the spotlight on domestic violence and let's put these abusers in their place. Folks, uh, from myself, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon and Phil Grimaldi, thank you so much for listening today. Have a great Sunday and uh, be safe. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.